break up the party, but I should probably get started. Ephesians 1 is where we will be this morning to begin, for your information. And while you're turning there, let me mention to you this, which I've made mention, but the time is approaching. Uh, Of course, next Sunday is Labor Day weekend, and so we will just continue on with, I mean, Labor Day is a, a great holiday, but not affecting the church schedule in any way apart from the fact that more people tend to be gone, so I try not to do anything unusual. So anyway, on the 11th, we're going to take four Sundays, which would be the three three remaining Sundays in September and the first remaining Sunday, or the first Sunday in October. And we're going to do something I don't know if we've ever done, but I'm going to ask you to divide by gender. And the guys will stay in here for those four weeks. And the ladies will go... And I realize it's probably not the best scenario, but I think realistically it is the most realistic scenario that we can offer. The ladies will probably go to a corner of the multi-purpose building. I uh, want to keep it on the main floor. I'm not sure I'm going to try and look a little more carefully if we can get everybody into room 104, but I don't really think so. Um, and Miss Carol Peterson is going to take the ladies' class for those four weeks. And someone has asked me if I would... Um, give some time to the subject matter of sexual temptation, which is something that is applicable both to males and females, but realistically is primarily a a male issue. And so I thought that it just might be um, best if we just took four weeks, and I don't think that we can exhaust the subject matter in four weeks, but we'll take four weeks, and I'll just meet with all the guys. We will meet in here. And again, that is, when I had approached Mrs. Peterson about teaching the class, I asked her if she would like to meet in the auditorium, and she didn't really feel like she wanted to do that. So if you're asking, why do you you get the auditorium? That's why. And if she changes her mind and wishes for the auditorium, guys, we will uh, relocate. But that's kind of what we're planning now. So that will be week after next, and that will be those four weeks. And again, so so that's that's kind of the plan that that we're going to do there. So... Uh, This morning, we are coming back to our Sunday School series on the providence of God, which we will return to um, in the second Sunday of October. We have far from exhausted the subject. And what I really wish to do this this morning is nothing that would be in any way new that most of you could probably already articulate to me. But I just want to kind of take the the very large view of providence. Of course, we have defined providence as the sovereignty of God in action, that God is actively working to control all events for his eternal purposes. And there is a very real sense, folks, in which all of those billions of little individual components are working towards one goal. And um, uh, that is something that we do not always see, and we do not necessarily easily see, but it is nevertheless the picture that the Bible is presenting. And so we've kind of introduced the subject matter. We've talked about a couple of the issues that it raises 
Like, where do we plug evil into the providence of a good God? And what about human free will? Do we really have it if God is actively controlling all things? And so beginning this morning, before we get into some of the specific details that the Bible story presents, we just want to take this kind of bird's eye view of the subject matter. So let's pray and we will turn our attention, first of all, to Ephesians chapter 1. Father, help us to recognize you as and appreciate you as a God who is genuinely capable of what we call multitasking. That at every moment in time, across this planet and the entire universe, in the lives of 7 billion people, you are actively superintending and directing all things, all events, towards your one all-consuming goal. And I pray that you would help us to understand that and to worship you rightly in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 1. I want to read the first 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and also that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. And I think we can say safely that the overarching goal of all events is to bring us to the place, folks, of the last expression of 114, unto the praise of his glory. Under the praise of his glory, God has been providentially and is providentially working in this world to bring all things unto the praise of his glory. And God has been doing that from a biblical perspective since the creation of Adam in the Garden of Eden and probably before that at whatever point he created the angelic beings. 
And God has been superintending that. And again, I mentioned to you, and we have just not even gone down this path, that there are a variety, at least I think three, different ways of viewing the providence of God. Um, and I'm just taking the most traditional, the, the one that I would be the most comfortable presenting to you, which is that God is actively controlling all events towards his glory without in any way depriving us of our human freedoms and liberties to the extent that we have them as human beings. Um, <clears throat> in other words, that God is not presenting this to us in the abstract and waiting, to, for, waiting for his next move to be what our next move is, although some people teach that. Okay? Um, <clears throat> right? And we have a variety of verses that are arguing this. For instance... In Isaiah 46, 10 and 11, God declares that he declares the end from the beginning. So that when God begins something, he announces what the end of that thing will be. That's what, the, that's what is meant in Isaiah 46, 10 and 11. That God doesn't begin something and then go, I wonder how this will turn out. Or we will have to see what will happen. But that from the very beginning, when God implements something, the end of that thing is already declared. Paul assures the Philippians in Philippians 1.6 with reference to their salvation that what he has begun, he will accomplish. And this is part of our confidence of our eternal security, that what God has begun in us, he will complete it. He will finish it. And particularly, which is one of the reasons that I read this passage this morning, this introduction to the book of Ephesians, particularly the way it is developed in verses 10 through 12. That in the dispensation, which really means in the administration, as God is functioning as the house ruler of his creation, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. When it is God's time, he will gather everything in Christ. Because Christ, of course, is the focal point of our creation. And this is because, verse number 11, in whom also we have and obtained an inheritance, which means in Christ being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. In other words, folks, the assurance that we have that verse number 10 is true is because it is the pleasurable will of God for this to happen in verse number 11. How do I know that when the time is right, all things in heaven and earth will be gathered together in Christ? Which biblically is a good thing. Because God has predestinated this out of the good pleasure of his will. This is something that God wants to happen, and therefore it will. And the good thing that will happen then is described in verse number 12. What will it ultimately mean for all things in heaven and earth to be gathered together in Christ in the fullness of time because this is pleasing to God? Verse number 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory 
who first trusted Christ. And that word to there in the verse means oriented towards. That this will be the orientation of our existence. As we exist right now, the orientation of our existence is very selfish, is it not? I mean, it just is. Some of that is unavoidable. I I cannot help, even in the most innocent of ways, of thinking about myself first. But left unbridled and unchecked and unanchored to any concept of God and what salvation means, selfishness abounds. It is the orientation of our lives. But our orientation will be changed. Right? That out of the good pleasure of his will, this is what God wants to happen. When the time is right, all things will be gathered together in Christ with this purpose, that we will be oriented, verse number 12, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. To the commendation of his spectacular worthiness. And that's what Paul is arguing. And this is not something that comes to us as, I mean, and and there's a sense, folks, and we need to understand, I think, think that it is helpful to us for us to understand that the Bible is very clear that God has revealed this truth, these truths, rather incrementally over time. And that's part of what Paul is explaining to the church in Ephesians 1 and 2, that part of the purpose of his ministry is not simply to function as an evangelist who sees people come to Christ, but to explain to them that the salvation of Gentiles, which we will get to, has been part of God's eternal purpose. That, right, that God has always been working towards this goal. This isn't something new that he took up at Pentecost. This isn't something that God decided upon after he came unto his own and his own received him not. Now what? but that God's plan has been from the very beginning of the creation, this moment when Ephesians 1, 10 through 12 will be fulfilled. So, <clears throat> so this, and, and, and then again, and this is kind of what we're going to look at this morning, right? As we think through that, because here we are, as far as I know, we are all Gentile people. And we're all sitting in here as Gentile people with a book in our hands that is primarily Hebrew in its ethic and its orientation. As I said last week, folks, there are not a lot of white people in the Bible story. Right? For for anyone to think, and we encountered this almost 30 years ago when we went to India, Right? That Christianity was good for you Americans because it's kind of an American thing. But we're Hindus. Right? But the orientation of the vast majority of human history and of the vast majority of the Bible story has been Hebrew in nature. And yet it has been Hebrew in nature with the point of making that God is going to bring Gentiles into that blend. So... <clears throat> 
let's just kind of walk through a little bit of how God explains that to us. The first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis are the story of God's providence of bringing us from creation and Adam into salvation and Abraham. And Abraham then in Genesis 1:11 or Genesis 11 becomes the pivotal point. We have right of course Genesis 1 and 2, the creation of man in Genesis 3, the fall of man. And from that moment on, Genesis chapter 3, our orientation has always been to move away from God, never toward Him. Human beings do not, by nature, gravitate to God. Now we'll get to this in the book of Corinthians when Paul will talk to the Corinthians pointedly about this in explaining why he uses the methodology that he uses when he preaches the gospel even to people as advanced and sophisticated as the Corinthians. And that is because men by nature do not gravitate to God. It is, it is I mean, look folks, this is just biblically true about me. It is biblically true about you. It is biblically true about every human being that ever lived. If you were the only person on the planet, you would not come to Jehovah God, Christ as your substitute, nailed to a cross. It would never happen. You would not do it. Nobody would write books to that end. From the fall of man, our orientation has been to get away from God. And one of the ways that we escape the reality of God is by inventing many false religions. Substitutes for God. But man by nature has been working away from God. And this culminates then in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9 with the condemnation of mankind and the flood of the earth. What happens, folks, if Right? And I'm not saying that God was because God is active and they're true believing people. And we know that from the Genesis account. But when you get to Genesis 6, what is God's assessment of mankind? Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. That is where people go. We are, we are spinning farther away from God on a regular basis. And that brings us then to Genesis chapter 11. In which out of the mass of humanity, and of course by Genesis chapter 11, right, we've had the flood, and we've had the repopulation of the earth, and we've had Noah's three sons go out and once again begin to fulfill the creation mandate to populate the world, and the world is filled, and out of the inarguably most advanced group of people alive on the planet at the time, God goes and picks Abraham. Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 12. And let me just give to you, I'm going to read, I'll read them, the verses, and give you the references. Joshua 24, 2 and 3 explain to us 
a little bit of the history of Abraham. I guess I've I've got a note here, but I don't have it. If you want to turn to Joshua 24, you can. I'm sorry, having had you turn to Genesis 12. Well, let's just begin with verse number 1, as long as we've turned there. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. Now I'm going to mention this because hopefully I'm going to remember to tie it together at the end. If we were looking at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, And of course, the Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew. But if we were looking at the Greek translation of it, that word served is a relatively specific word. It is a word to describe religious service. Abraham did religious service to other gods. Abraham was, in the truest sense of the word, folks, a pagan. That's not an insult That is a definition of somebody who is polytheistic in their orientation. Many gods, they're pagans. That was Abraham. Worshipped many gods. Joshua 24.3, God said, I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. I took him. In Nehemiah, fast-forwarding many years, Nehemiah 9, 6, and 7, part of Nehemiah's prayer, Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all the things that are therein, the seas that all that is therein. Thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Thou art the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abraham and brought him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees, and gavest him the name of Abraham. His name, of course, was originally Abraham, which means something like mighty father. And God said, well, we're not going to call you Abraham or Abram anymore. We're going to call you Abraham, father of multitudes. The father of multitudes. And this is in part, folks, because of the promise that is made to him in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and will bless thee, make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee. Curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Let us remember that we're considering this morning as God's providence. Right? The way that a God who can do anything that he wants is directly intervening into the lives of people and events of the world to bring about the end that he wants. And the end that he wants is for everybody to be gathered in Christ and to praise Christ's glory. And he does that by selecting out of a pagan nation one man, Abraham. And this man then, folks, really in many ways does become a major orientation in the Bible story. We all know this. We know 
the significance of Abraham. But turn, if you would, back to the New Testament, to the book of Galatians, Corinthians, and then Galatians. Alright, so here we are reading along, and we got Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and we know where Abraham come from, and we don't really even know Abram's orientation. I mean, we might just conclude that Abram was somehow a true believer living in Ur of the Chaldees, but he's not. He is a man who is serving the deities of the earth of, of the Chaldeans. Here is Paul's assessment, Galatians chapter 3, verse number 6. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, which means which come out of faith, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. So we can read that back now on Genesis 12, 1 and 3. And is that legitimate? I will make you a mighty people, right? I will make you a great nation. And when we read the promise to him in Genesis 12, in Genesis 13, in Genesis 15, in Genesis 17, what does God mean? Well, here's God's interpretation, Galatians 3, 7. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Abraham's children are not oriented to him ethnically. They are not oriented to him necessarily physically. They are oriented to him spiritually. But verse number 9, or verse number 8, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. So again, folks, right? If you were to say something like this, God, tell me about yourself. I declare the end from the beginning. When I announce that something is going to start, I have the ability to bring it to its conclusion. And in Genesis 12, we have the start of Abraham But the story of Abraham is not yet concluded. But the scriptures, seeing that God would justify, make righteous the heathen, Gentiles is the idea, through faith, preach the gospel in this, in these shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So 4,000 years ago, folks, approximately, 4,000 years ago, God chooses the man who would become the paradigm of all who would be rightly related to God through his faith, not his works, but his faith. Now, we understand this doesn't mean that nobody who lived prior to Abraham was lost. Noah wasn't lost. Adam isn't lost. There are saved people. Somewhere out there in that world is Job a believer. Right? But Abraham becomes, I hope this, I 
hope this is not put inappropriately, becomes the poster child for what kind of person is going to be rightly related to God. And that is a person who comes to God out of faith, having absolutely no connection to their ethnicity or their racial identity or their cultural identity. It is all going to be out of faith. And in so doing that, God makes the commitment that all who believe like Abraham believed, in what Abraham believed, are going to enjoy the promises that God made to Abraham. So that everybody who believes on Jesus will ultimately enjoy the benefits that God made to Abraham. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 4.16, therefore it is of of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law. In other words, not only to the Jews, although they are the focus, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him who he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, who gives life to the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Right? So that which is invisible, God declares to be, and it is. Or if you're still open in Galatians 3, Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So right here is thousand or several thousand years of human history, and here is Abraham, and to him is this promise. I will make you the father of many nations, and in you will all the people of the earth be blessed. And how will that come about? Because Abraham is going to be, right, the paradigm of those who believe and the progenitor in some way of Jesus Christ the Messiah through the flesh. So that all who come to Christ by faith will enjoy the promises of God made to Abraham. Or as Paul explains to the Ephesians in Ephesians 3-4, whereby when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. Right? So part of the beauty of being a New Testament Christian, folks, is that we have, inf- we have information that other people did not. For instance, we're not sure how much of this Abraham knew, or David knew, or Moses knew. Which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. And for a clear explanation, I'm not going to take the time to turn to, but if you would like to have some graphic representation of how that worked, go to Romans chapter 11 in which God gives you his explanation of kind of a drawing. Right? Imagine a tree, and the tree is Israel. 
And here are the Gentiles, right? And the Gentiles are like a tree, but they're not connected to this tree. So we're going to graft them. We're going to take some of them and graft them in and make them all part of the tree. And of course, folks, this then creates, and we're not going to get too far into this, this then creates a world in which there are people who are ethnically Israelites because they are descendants of Abraham physically, and there are people like you who are spiritually Israelites because you have also believed in Jesus Christ. And then, of course, there's a great big fight among believers as to what that means to those who are ethnic Israels, Israelis. But that is the scenario that the Bible picks. So that's Genesis 1 through 11. We have the selection of Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, and I'm just obviously dealing in really large segments. Genesis chapter 12 through the end of Malachi is the story of how one man became the father of the Israeli people. And whatever happened to those people. Right, that's really, there's, I mean, you know, there's obviously a lot of moving pieces and a lot of years pass and a lot of personalities, but it is the story of how one man, Abraham, became a mighty nation, Israel, and what happened to that mighty nation. And that's what we have in the remainder of the book. And so we have, right, we have then in later in the book of Genesis, the departure of Abraham and his few descendants into the land of Egypt, where they are held in captivity for over 400 years. And the introduction of Moses, who is their deliverer and their mediator of the Old Covenant. And by the way, folks, right? You can go back to the Gospels and you can read all of the genealogies about Jesus that you want. And Moses is in none of them. Because Moses is a true outsider to that world. The book of Matthew opens with the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And Moses is not there. Because Moses is not there. Moses is there to point us to Christ, not to be a part of Christ. And so these people then in Exodus chapter 19 through 20, we've, we've, we've talked about this, we looked at it in the morning service last week, where God made them in effect the offer, if you will do what I say, I will become your God, you will become my people. They agreed, there's the ratification on Mount Sinai, the whole mountain is shaking in darkness and fire and smoke and terror all deliberately designed to keep the people at arm's length, all deliberately designed to keep the people directly away from God and accessing God only through Moses the mediator. And then we read through the story of how to the group of people who are constituted a nation, there is added to them a king. And then what becomes of the kingdom? And the kingdom, of course, is at its peak under David and Solomon. Now, once again, right? 
from our New Testament standpoint, it's pretty easy to look back and understand that all of that is in some way instrumental to Christ. But those people did not necessarily grasp that. They did not always see it, and nevertheless, it was always God's eternal providential goal. Turn, if you would now, to Acts chapter 14. Right, and here's the question that I want to raise. Whoops, maybe I should stop turning backwards in my Bible. What about everybody else? While God is in Ur of the Chaldees raising up Abraham, what about people in China? And while Moses is in Mount Sinai constituting an Israelite, what about people in North America? And while David is sitting on the throne ruling the nation of Israel, what about people in South America? What about everybody who lives on that massive continent of Africa? What about them? What about the Russians? Well, in Acts chapter 14, folks, you have virtually everything that the Bible has to say about God's interaction with those people. And in fact, folks, unless those people are in some way directly related to Israel at some level. This is all that the Bible says about them. After the Bible says that they scattered to the ends of the earth in the early part of Genesis. Acts chapter 14, verse number 15. Right? Paul is running in now. People, right? People are all excited about Paul and Barnabas. Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities. Right? Now, this, these, are the, these are the sacrifices that Paul encounters of all these pagan deities. That you should turn from these vanities unto the living God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. So here's God, right? He is the God who has created the universe. He is the God who has brought about the flood and the resultant geography of the earth. He is the God who has looked over all the population of the earth and for his own purposes and his own reasons went to Ur the Chaldees and picked Abraham. And if you said to God, well, what about the Chinese people? He said, oh, I'm just letting them do whatever they want. Well, what about the people living in North America? I I just choose to let them do whatever they want. They're, They're on their own. Well, what about Africa? Right? This is the inspired record, folks, of what God was doing in the rest of the world while all of his attention was laser-focused like on the nation of Israel. He suffered them, he permitted them to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, folks, with this disclaimer, disclaimer, nevertheless, he left not himself without witness. 
And what is the nature of that witness? He did good. And he gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. He gave you good stuff. And he kept you alive. And he gave you the necessary rain. And apart from that, he left you to yourself. Now, if we think, folks, by the way, right? And, and maybe what I'm going to do, because I'm already out of time, maybe this morning I'm just going to stop here and we will come back to this. What are the implications? Let me put it this way. What are the implications of Acts 14, 15 through 17? When the inspired record is, all of that time and energy that I was putting into raising up Abraham so that he could have Isaac, so that he could have Jacob, so that Jacob could have 12 sons, so that they could bring us David and then Solomon and ultimately Christ. And what were you doing with everybody else? I left them to their own devices, but I did leave myself a witness. And folks, right there, in fact, I think I just will. I'm just going to close with this this morning, and we will return to this next week. Romans chapter 1. In other words, do those people get any kind of a pass because they were not the recipients of God's attention in that way. Well, I think Romans 1 answers that question beginning in verse number 18. Right? To all of those people that God had left alone, He now issues this commandment. Repent, believe in Jesus. That's kind of a reflection, right, of the Great Commission. Our responsibility is to proclaim that message Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness, which you know mean they hold the truth down. Right? They're they are trying to sit on the truth of God. And how is that? Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. In other words, when somebody argues, I was just talking to one of the guys this morning about an athlete who was an avowed atheist. And so when the day comes that he explains to God that he was just an avowed atheist, God's response will be, you shouldn't have been an atheist. You should have understood that everything you interacted with that you could see and touch and handle is the result of something that wasn't there previously. Even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Verse number 21, because that when they knew God, how did they know? And the answer to that, folks, is that God never left himself without witness. He did good and sent rain, and brought fruitful seasons. But when they knew God, 
They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image. It wasn't the eternal invisible God who brought us the rain. It was our golden calf that brought us the rain. Because man by nature never walks towards God, but always away from him. There's more to that, and I did not intend to take two weeks, but I think looking at the remainder of my lesson that there will be uh, a little bit more, so we'll just come back to this next week. And so I'm going to stop there. We have about uh, 12 minutes.